Let's uh, have your Bibles open in Colossians chapter 3. Let's see if we can pull up that first slide for you. I've called this message the gospel culture. The gospel culture. And we'll have a look at it from chapter 3 verse 9 through to chapter 4 verse 1. Let me pray. Father, thank you for all that we have received this morning through song through the reading of your word, through prayer, through what Christine has shared for us. What we are now to receive from your word, may it penetrate deep to the very, to the very core, to the very fabric, to the very marrow of, of who we are, that your spirit would apply your word, speaking, changing, correcting, rebuking, challenging, all that. And uh, thank you for what we will still receive as we fellowship together a little bit later. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the gospel culture. The gospel culture. Culture. As you know, the word culture is a big word, isn't it? Culture. Buzzword today. In the words of Tony Payne, culture is the whole way we do things around here. Now that means that Australia has got a culture. And that means that Aussies generally have a whole way of doing things. And uh, I just went having, having a look, and here, here's, here's the whole way around here that Aussie do things. I'm, so I'm told, you can correct me afterwards, they don't lock their doors. They, uh, lots of Aussies walk around barefoot. They do laundry in cold water. Uh, they are not phased by deadly animals. They always shorten words and have a lot of strange expressions. They swear all the time, and they have a weird obsession with Vegemite. Is that, is that true, Aussies? Aussies have a culture. Church has a culture. Buston Baptist Church has a culture. Now let me give you a picture from Colossians 3, 9 to 17, if you've got your Bible open in front of you. I want to give you a picture that shows the whole way around here that we should do things. Here's, here's what our culture should look like at Busselton Baptist Church. Here's the way we should do things as you take a look at this picture coming up. That diagram is a summary of Colossians 3, 9 to 17. The culture of a church infused with the life of Christ, filled by the Spirit of God, it is to be a culture where we are telling the truth to one another, we are compassionate, we are patient, we are gentle, we are humble, we are kind, we are forgiving of one another, and we are forbearing with one another. That is what our culture should look like. Now the question comes, how do we pursue that culture? How do we seek after that culture? How do we go after it? And the answer is in the passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, which says this, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
how do you pursue this sort of godly culture or this gospel culture that we've been talking about? Let me summarize it for you this way. The way that we pursue it is that we teach and admonish one another with the Word of God. We teach and admonish one another with the message of Christ in the name of Christ. And I want to make that very practical. So here's what that looks like. If you and I in this church culture are going to teach and admonish one another, it looks like this. Number one, it looks like that we encourage one another with the Word of God when we're feeling depressed, downhearted, discouraged, or despairing. That's what we do. Second, we will teach each other the Word of God when we don't know what the Word of God says. Here's a third way that we do it. We admonish one another with the Word of God when we see that we're straying from the Lord, when we're straying from His Word. And the fourth way in which we teach and admonish is that we rebuke one another with the Word of God when we are sinning or have sinned. And in fact, the fifth way is that we teach and admonish. It means that we work out our conflicts with each other with the Word of God in the peace of Christ. You pursue a gospel culture when the people of God are continually admonishing and teaching each other with the Word of God in all its forms, whether it's in song, whether it's in written form, and we're doing that in order to encourage one another, to, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And the tone in which we do it is a tone of brother and sister. Remember that from last week? The dominant aspect of a family metaphor in the Bible is, is, is brother and sister. We do that. We admonish and we teach one another in, 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 a, in a tone of, of brother and sister. BBC, is that us? Is that us? Would you say, brothers and sisters, are we growing in this sort of gospel culture? Now, if you've got your Bible in front of you, I want you to notice that in, in verses 9 to 17, it's been largely about the church life, the culture in, in the church. But there's a, there's a shift, and it moves to the home, and it'll move to the work. If you've got an NIV, let me just say again, oh, how I wish they would remove those headings of, of rules for Christian households. Just sort of scratch that out. Moving on. We're going to transition from the church culture into the family culture, into the work culture. But let me ask you this. As we transition from the one to the other with Paul in the passage, do you think that the culture in the church is going to be different to the culture in the family? Should we expect to find something different? That we have a cult, one culture in the church and another culture at home and another culture at work. Do you think there's going to be a difference? Do you think there should be a difference? The culture in the church is to be the same culture in the family, is to be the same culture in the workplace. And again, as we keep transitioning with Paul... I want to show you something so, so important. If you've got your Bible, have a look at it. I want you to look at the three relational couplets in that passage from 3.18 to 4.1. And it'll come up on the screen as well. 
Have a look at this. Notice in 3.18 that Paul speaks to wives before he speaks to husbands in 3.19. Did you notice that? Notice that he speaks to children 3.20 before he speaks to fathers. And notice that he speaks to slaves before he speaks to masters. Now, if you were reading this in the culture of the day, this would have been a monumental shock. Why? Because in the Greek, Roman, Jewish culture of the day in Colossae, wives, children, and slaves were seen as the possessions of their husbands, their parents, and masters. In the culture of that day, men, husbands, fathers, and masters were seen as superior to women, children, wives, and slaves. Even the Jewish rabbis, they prayed this. I th they prayed three things. Here's a Jewish rabbi. I thank God that I'm not a woman. I thank God that I'm not a Gentile. And I thank God that I'm not a slave. The Greek philosophy of the day from people like Aristotle and Plato had infiltrated the culture where someone like Aristotle said of slaves, they are simply human tools. Aristotle said this about women. He said, The male is by nature superior and the female inferior. The male ruler and the female subject. End quote. Sadly, that still exists in many, many churches today. By Paul addressing wives, children, and slaves first, Paul subverts the whole pagan, godless culture of superiority and inferiority where he honors the equality the worth the dignity and the respect of women wives and children and slaves but let me just show you this as well as we back up into a slightly wider context of colossians chapter 3 verse 11 take a look at it and I've put Galatians 3.28 next to it. Here's, remember, we're still talking church culture here. Here in the church culture, there, there's no Gentile or Jew. There's no circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Just pop Galatians 3.28 next to it. Sort of a parallel verse. Here in the church culture, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul's saying? Paul is saying that in the body of Christ, there are no racial, educational, national, gender, socioeconomic distinctions that make one person superior over, other, over another. There is no superiority of anybody over anybody in the body of Christ. And therefore, there is no superiority of, of anyone over anyone in the family. There's no superiority of anyone over anyone in the workplace. It doesn't matter where it is. If it's Christian, there is no superiority, inferiority. In the culture of the day, it was absolutely riddled with superiority and inferiorities. In Christ, there are none, none, none in the church body, none in the Christian home, none in the Christian workplace. And I hope as you hear that, I hope that you hear that that is wonderful news. That is wonderful news. And that is why so many in the first century, they were flocking to Jesus. And they were flocking into the churches. Uh, women, wives, children and slaves flocking to Jesus in the churches because of the gospel culture. 
So let me paint a little picture for you of that little church in Colossae. I want to paint a little gospel picture of what it, what it looked like. As you know from Colossians 4, Paul was in jail as he wrote this letter. If you look at chapter 4, you'll notice as well that the letter that Paul wrote in jail was going to go back to the church in Colossia, home church. It was going to go through the Greek Tychicus, and it would go back through the runaway slave Onesimus. And this little house church met in Colossae in Philemon's home where Onesimus, and we'll get to him, and the slavery, uh, where Onesimus used to be a slave. And if you were to walk into that little house church in Colossae, do you want to know what would have confronted you? You would have been confronted by converted women and wives, converted men and husbands, converted slaves and masters, converted free men and women. You would have been confronted by converted Greeks and converted Scythians and converted Jews and barbarians. And as Paul's letter to the Colossians, to the Colossians is read, he first addresses the powerless, the oppressed, the marginalized, and the weak of society. And he says to them all sitting there, you're all one in Christ. No one superior over another. All of you able to use your gifts for the Lord. Can you imagine the shock? Can you imagine the delight? This is gospel culture. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So BBC, is that our culture? Is that what we chase? Is that what we're after? So have a look. We transition. So we, we go from the gospel culture and we're going to see how it infiltrates into my second heading, which is the marriage, the gospel marriage. And I want you to look at that first couplet, verse 18 and 19. And he moves from 17 into 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And I'm not surprised that so many Christian women and so many Christian wives absolutely cringe when they hear the word submission. And ladies, you should cringe when that word is taken out of context and misunderstood as it so often is. Here's how the Oxford Dictionary defines submission. Accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will of of another person. Accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will of another person. And I want to say to you, that is not what the Bible means by submission. When we talk about wives submitting to their husbands, we need to allow the context of the passage to define what it means. And when we allow submission to be defined by what we've just read, we get a very different feel of what Christian submission looks like for wives. Let me give it to you. Here's what it means. A wife who submits is a wife, number one, who allows her husband to teach and admonish her with the Word of God. Verse 16. A wife who is submissive is a wife that clothes herself 
in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness towards her husband. Verse 12 to 14. Back in 3.11, a submissive wife is a wife who does not think she is superior over her husband. Look at verse 18. Submission for a wife looks like fitting in the Lord. It means in the name of the Lord. It means submission looks like the submission of Jesus. It means that a Christian wife will deny herself for the good of her husband. It means the submission of Christ in Philippians 2, where the wife will do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but consider her husband above herself, not looking to her own interests only, but also to the interests of her husband. That's what submission means. That's all that it means. And it's beautiful. But you'll notice in verse 19, it then, uh, Paul then addresses the husbands, his love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That word harsh can mean sort of bitter. Don't, em, don't, em, don't embitter your wives. And, and so now as Paul addresses husbands, he, he says, husbands, you see, one of the ways in which you can embitter bitter and be harsh with your wife is, is to husbands to rule over them, to domineer them, to tell them what to do, to think you're the boss, to think that you wear the pants in the house. There's a whole lot of Christian husbands that are absolutely deceived into thinking that they're the boss of their own homes. They're like sergeant majors that order their wives and children around. What does it mean for a husband to love his wife? For a husband to love his wife, it's in the same context of the submission that we've just read about. A loving husband, number one, listen, husbands, a loving husband allows his wife to admonish and teach him with the word of God. Verse 16. A loving husband will clothe himself with compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and forgiveness and forbearance towards his wife. Verses 12 to 14. A loving husband will not think, chapter 3, verse 11, that he is superior over his wife. A loving husband, it looks like Jesus in Ephesians chapter 5. It looks like Jesus who laid down his life for his, his church, his bride. You see, a, a loving husband will deny himself for the good of his wife. A loving husband does not seek to do anything out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, but will consider his wife above himself and will not look to his own needs only, but also to the needs of his wife. It's beautiful. That's what gospel marriage is. So Christian wives, let me ask you, is that what your gospel submission looks like? Does it look like that which I've just described from the Bible, not from the culture? Wives, is that what your gospel submission looks like? Husbands, Christian husbands, is that what your gospel love looks like? Defined from the Bible, not from culture. Husbands and wives together this morning, is your marriage a Gospel marriage. Thirdly, gospel parenting. 
gospel parenting. Paul in verse 20 addresses children. I think I've got verse 20. He addresses children first, which again in the culture of the day was absolutely extraordinary because children were seen as inferior. They were nuisances. They were to be seen and not heard. I don't know how adults forget that once upon a time they were also children. Moving on. But notice verse 20. Children are called to obey their parents. Now you read that and you go, well, that doesn't sound all that extraordinary. But it is when you understand that the fathers ruled the roost in that culture. It was their word that went. Their word ruled over wife and child. Their, their, their word overruled anything the wife might say. Paul is saying, children, obey your dad and obey your and your mum. Extraordinary in the culture. We can talk over tea how children play mum and dad depending on who they think they can manipulate. It's no secret which parent in our home is manipulated by our children, but you can speak to me afterwards. Moving on. Children, Obey your mum and dad because it is pleasing to the Lord. Here, remember there's children in this little church in Colossae. Here's what a child is hearing. That my mum's word is as good as dad's word? Holy smoke. If you're a teenager here, just put up your hand. Got any teens in here? There's a... Alana? Oh, okay. We've got a few... Te- All right. Teens, just lend me, your, lend me your ears for a moment. Teenagers? Any kids in here? Teenagers? Obey your parents. Shannon, don't look away now. Look at me. <laughs> Obey your parents because that honors the Lord. It pleases the Lord. You are to do it in a way that honors the Lord. But I do want to say to you, Teens, do not obey your parents if they ask you to do something that displeases the Lord. That does not honor the Lord. Now just stay with me, teenagers, for just a moment. Let me just see those hands again, teens, just so I can see where you are, Charlotte, Levi, right? Listen to me. I know that you think you know everything. I know that. I want to tell you, Charlotte, you don't. And obeying your parents means listening to their wisdom. Teens, Their parents don't get everything right, but they get most of it right. Teenagers are not known for their humility, are they? What I want to say to you, teenagers, you need to have humility to listen to the wisdom of your parents who love you. But keep following with the passage. Look at verse 21. He then moves to fathers, do not embitter your children. Now, just stop there. In view of what we just read in verse 20, how might you have expected Paul to write the start of verse 21? Not using fathers. What, what might you have expected? Parents, right? He's just used parents, but now he goes back to what? He addresses fathers. Why? You see, because the fathers in that culture were the dominant autocrats. That They were the ones that thought they were the, were, 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 were the boss. In Afrikaans, we say the boss from the plus. You understand that, Caroline? And Etienne, don't you?
Paul addresses Christian fathers. He says, don't, don't embitter them. Don't embitter them. It, it, it's a similar word. Okay? Harsh. Don't, 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 don't be harsh with them. Christian fathers, don't, don't dominate your children. Don't, don't rule with an iron fist. Don't demand obedience as if, as, as, as if you're some sort of lord of your own castle. Don't enforce your will on them. Don't, don't crush their spirit. That's what he's saying to them. And uh, both fathers and mothers here want to give you a list of things that you can do. You want to discourage your children? You want to embitter them? You want to be harsh with them? Here's some of the things that you can do. Here's a, here's a, here's a list. Here's what you can do to embitter your children. Shout at them. Be petty. Have favoritism. Compare your children to other children. Compare your children to the others in the family. Don't encourage them. Don't show affection. Don't tell them that you love them. Ignore them. Dismiss their point of view. Don't allow them to express themselves. Be absent. Control them. Overprotect. Depreciate their worth. Don't discipline. Have no standards. And Christian husband, treat your wife as if you're the boss. God help us. Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive us. Teenagers, are you seeking, teens, are you seeking to be obedient to the Lord? Obedient to the parents as is pleasing to the Lord. Christian parents, are you exasperating your children? Are you embittering them? Lord, have mercy on us and forgive us. Here's number four. So Paul transitions from the church culture, which should be a gospel culture, into a marriage, which should be a gospel marriage, into parenting, which should be look like the gospel, and then he moves finally in the section to to the gospel workplace. And follow with me, if you've got your Bible, from 3.22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything, and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart, is working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, just if you go back to the start of that, does anything strike you in that passage as being a little bit uncomfortable? It should. What's uncomfortable about this whole passage? What's the word? Slaves. It's the issue of slaves, isn't it? Now the problem is here is that many people try to domesticate the passage by saying that Paul was only addressing Christians that had domesticated workers who were always very well looked after. Back in South Africa, under apartheid, many white families employed black domestic workers. They were not slaves, but unfortunately many were treated like that. That's not the situation here. Paul 
is addressing Christian masters who had, Christi- who had slaves, and if they were converted, they were sitting in the same church together. They were right there. If it was a Christian master, a Christian slave, sitting right there, right there in this little home church. Remember Philemon. Remember Onesimus. You can't domesticate this passage because there were over 40 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And again, remember Onesimus, this runaway slave who ran away from Philemon, a Christian master. Onesimus later gets converted and Paul actually sends him back. That you can read up in the book of Philemon. So follow in verse 22. Paul speaks to slaves and he says to them, don't run away. He says, don't, don't, don't run away and become free people. In another passage, he says, you can. I mean, if you can get your freedom, run away. I mean, you get your freedom. But the problem is that so many of these slaves could not have their freedom. They were in absolute bondage. And he says to these slaves, obey your earthly masters. Obey your slave owner. Work for them in such a way that honors and pleases the Lord. What that means is that you work in such a way that you honor your master. You honor your slave owner. You, 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 you respect them and honor you in the way that the Lord Jesus Christ has honored and respected you. Look at verse 23. When you work for your master, do it as, as working for the Lord. In other words, do, do, do it in a way that pleases the Lord. Work hard. Go the extra mile. Seek excellence. Don't be sloppy. Don't be negligent. These are all things that we can apply to our own lives today if we're still in employment, can't we? But I want you to remember, slaves had no rights. None. They couldn't marry unless their owner said so. They could be sold to someone else. Their children could be taken away from them and their children could be sold to someone else. We are looking at an article or a program in the week, I think it was, on the, on the stolen generation of Australia. And it was terrible, absolutely awful, the stolen generation. There were stolen generations. So many we can't even count in the Roman Empire under that slavery. Look what Paul says to the slaves in verse 24. He says, since you know, let me see if I've got a, I think I've got verse 24 somewhere. Look at it, there it is. Verse 24, this is what he says to them. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. See what he says? He says to slaves, you might have absolutely nothing in this world. Nothing. You might be absolutely poor. You may have no inheritance from anywhere, from anyone, but I want you to know this, slaves, that you possess everything in Christ. And because you are in Christ, you have an inheritance that is coming that is beyond anything that you can even begin to imagine. You are richer, therefore, than any earthly Christian, uh, Christian or non-Christian master over you. And then verse 25, look what he says to them. He says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. He says to slaves, slaves, you may be trapped, you may be in slavery, you may be in bondage. There may be awful things that your slave owner is doing to you, but I want you to remember this, that God sees, God knows, God cares. Jesus is with you in that particular position, and he will bring about justice. He will. If it's not in this life, 
it will come in the next. There may be some of us here this morning. I, I, I doubt that there are many of us here that can really identify with what this was like for slaves. But there may be some here this morning that feel that you are trapped in a particular situation. Maybe there's a form of slavery going on that you can't escape. Maybe, maybe there's a form of abuse. Maybe it's some form of financial slavery that's been thrust on you or inflicted upon you. Maybe you, this morning there may be some of you that are just in some sort of trapped situation. And the Lord says to you, justice will come. He loves you. He cares for you. He sees it. He's with you in it. Christ in you. The Spirit is in you there, right there in that slaverous situation with you. And if He doesn't bring about justice in this world, it will come. It will come because those, those who have not repented of their evil crime and abuse of others will be severely punished by the Lord. And then you notice in 4.1, it sort of wraps it up, just one verse, it says to the masters, the slave owners, to Christian masters, to Christian slave owners, to Christian bosses, to Christian employers, if you like, if you want to bring it down. He says, provide for your slaves, provide what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Masters, treat your slaves Treat your employers. Treat them with gentleness and kindness and patience and compassion. Forbear with them and forgive them because you have a master in heaven and that's how your master treats you. If you've got your Bible, flick back to chapter 3, verse 11 again. Remember what, what Paul said, in Christ there is what? There is no slave or free. Christian slave owner, treat your slaves with dignity and respect. And remember this, he's saying to slave owners, remember this, remember, treat all your slaves, treat them all with dignity and respect. But remember, if one of your slaves is a Christian, then that is a brother or sister in Christ, and you are to, you are to love them deeply. Now let me ask you this. Do you think that if you were a Christian slave owner, if you were someone like Philemon hearing this, do you think that you would have repentfully and joyfully set your slaves free if they wanted to go free? Do you think that's what you would have done? That's what you would have done. And that's how the gospel worked in the pagan culture. It worked from the inside. Back in South Africa again, I want to tell you that uh, I can only say it was ghastly. Just about every white family had domestic workers. The domestic workers in the home were usually the ladies. They were black ladies that worked in the home. And the black men worked in the gardens. 
And I can honestly say to you it was a form of slavery because they had no rights. They had no medical care. They had no medical coverage. They had no sick leave. They had no, they, if they took leave or in holiday, it was all unpaid and so on and so on and so on. It was an extraordinary situation. And if you had a, if you had a Christian, if you, had a, if you were a Christian and you had a, 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 a Christian black domestic worker, you could not worship in the same white church together. You couldn't do it. How ironic it was it went the other way. Black churches allowed white Christians to be there. God help us and God forgive us. God help us and God forgive us. Do you see what Paul's doing? The gospel, he's pushing the gospel in. And as he does that, He's beginning to subvert the whole godless pagan culture right from the top, through the church, through the home, through parenting, through the workplace. And this gospel culture would seep slowly, 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 seep down, start to work things from the inside out until God raises up people like William Wilberforce to take on the whole system and smash it to pieces. I want to give you a picture. I want you to imagine that church in Colossae again. Can you imagine a Christian slave and a Christian master worshipping together? Oh, can you imagine it? <laughs> Onesimus and Philemon. Poor, rich, homeless, home. Sitting right there, right there together. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine for a moment, maybe, maybe, maybe Onesimus serving communion to his Christian master? Wow. Can you imagine Onesimus the slave now converted? Can you imagine him admonishing and teaching his Christian master? Imagine South African. Imagine... Imagine your Christian black domestic worker admonishing you with the word of God. God forgive us. All right. Got to pull this down a little, right? Because none of us are slaves, right? So, if you're here this morning and you're an employee, you work for someone, you have a boss, does your employeeship look like the gospel? Does it? You working for someone else, does it, does it, does it look like Colossians 3, 22 to 24 or 25? Does it look like that? You're a boss here? Any bosses here? Any employers? There we go. With a CEO. Wow. Does your does your employership does it look like this? Where you are clothing yourself with compassion and gentleness and kindness and humility and goodness and forbearance and forgiveness and love. All right, I need, to, uh, I need to wrap up. So here's what we've done.
We've looked at the gospel culture, right? In the church. We've shifted it with Paul into the, into the marriage. And then we've shifted with Paul into, the, into parenting. And it's been very brief, I know. And then we've shifted it into the workplace, looking at slavery, master slave, and then bringing it down here. So with all that, let, let me... And I'm going to bring it up on the screen because I just want you to think about these things. Here's, here's number one. Here's, here's how I'm going to finish. It's a couple of them. Number one, the gospel, the BBC, Boston Baptist Church, the, the BBC gospel culture is to be one of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, submitting to one another, summed up in love. That's what it's to be. How we doing? How we doing? If you're a Christian married couple, the culture of your relationship is to reflect a growing compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and mutually submitting to one another in love. How's it going, newly married? How we doing? How we doing? Does it look like that? Whether you've been married 60 years? Or how many, Scott? Sorry, four. Wow. Four or 40, six or 60. Three. If you're a Christian child, teen, living at home, the culture of your relationship with your parents is to reflect a growing godly obedience and a growing humility as you listen to their wisdom. Teens, what's the new word? Tweenies? Are there any tweenies out there, teens? How you doing? How you going? Number if you're a Christian parent, the culture of your parenting is to reflect a growing compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with your children and forgiving them in love when they hurt you. And when they hurt you more than you can even begin to express. How are we doing? How are we doing, parents? If you're a Christian employee, the culture of your relationship to your employer is to, be, to reflect a growing compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with them and forgiving them in love. How's it going, employee? Would you come home every day and just rubbish your boss? And tear him down. Talk ill. Speak of them like they're less than nothing. And if you are an employee, uh, the culture of your relationship to your employees is to be that of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with them and forgiving them in love.
Can I just ask, the tone is brother and sister. Brother and sister, can we, can we take this? That this is the Lord's word. And you've got to take that and examine that, right? This is the Lord's word. Would you take it? And would you, would you take it and apply it and knead it deep, deep into the very, very heart and the very fabric of your relationships? Would you pray with me? Father, we look at we look at these we look at this gospel culture in all of these relationships and it's so it's so beautiful, it's so glorious, it's so it's life and it's liberating and it's good. Father, this morning we need, to, we need to come before you and repent. We need to come and seek your forgiveness for the many, many ways in which we've distorted or perverted that, that gospel culture in our relationships. Please, would you forgive us? Thank you that in Christ your forgiveness is so encompassing that we are forgiven, but we seek your forgiveness we would ask for such a filling of the Spirit, such an indwelling of the Spirit through the Word of God that we will pursue more and more this beautiful gospel culture in our relationships. Starting here in this body this morning, moving out into family, parenting, marriage, home, Workplace, sport place, wherever that may be. Deal with us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace that strengthens us to do better in Christ. Amen.